Hey everyone, it's just me, Chris. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know that the new website is now live, so if you want to check it out, you're more than welcome to. I'll put it in the show notes. I've collected the interviews onto one page, the Van Life episodes onto one page, all the podcasts get an entry up there too, and I'm looking for guest writers who will do a once-a-month entry and chat about somewhere that they've been to as well. Also, we are now on Patreon, so if you want to support the podcast in that way, you're more than welcome to. I've made sure that the first tier is just the price of a cup of, a cup of coffee each month, and the other tiers have some more benefits as well, so check it out if you'd like to. But thank you very much for listening, and let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast, and happy 4th of July to all of my American listeners. Today is kind of a 4th of July special, I guess. We've got a Brit interviewing an Aussie who has taken up a green card, resides in the US and in 2017 visited all of the US national parks. We have Renee Roaming on the podcast. Fantastic to interview her, sit down. We talk about adventure, travel, photography and of course many questions on America, living in America and the national parks too. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. If you like it, follow, subscribe, share it with a friend but otherwise let's just get straight into the interview so hello Renee welcome to the show how are you doing today hey thanks for having me I'm great thank you perfect so for those who don't know Renee has traveled to nearly 40 countries across five continents she left speech therapy and took a photography to a full-time level in 2016 alongside her husband, Matthew, and together they make a force to be reckoned with. Renee's hard graft, organization, positivity, and engagement with all of you lead her to continued success after success. With a massively eclectic collection of locations from Alberta to the Dolomites, to New Zealand, to Kenya, to the US national parks, to Peru and more, Renee is able to give first-hand and valuable experience of these places from her stunning photography, brilliant blogs, and adventurous tales, and does. From photography trips to itineraries to backcountry camping to her book, Roaming America, which details all of the national parks, Renee consistently aims to deliver value to her audience. I'll put your Instagram and website and links in the show notes so everyone can check it out, and I implore they do. But otherwise, thank you very much for your time today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for that amazing introduction that, um, yeah, I'm feeling good about that. <laughs> I, I, I joked before that there should be Star Wars credits going up as I, yeah, right? as I read out. Um, so Colorado and Washington are both places of such beauty. And I think most of the listeners, are, you know, at least the majority for some time would love to live in either places. And you are lucky enough to live in both. So what are some things you love about each place? Yeah, so living in Colorado was, it was the perfect place for us when we very first moved to the US because one of the main reasons that my husband and I moved to the US was to be in the mountains. Having grown up near the ocean in Australia, obviously that was amazing, but we just loved the mountains and we wanted to be closer for hiking and things like that. So Colorado, if you know, if no one's been there before, I'll tell you, the mountains are amazing and there's so <laughs> many opportunities for hiking and camping. So that was brilliant. But um, we also had a little bit of time away from Colorado while we were traveling and we got to experience more of the Pacific Northwest and just the different kind of beauty that's in places like Washington. And honestly, we just fell in love with the jagged, dramatic mountains of Washington. And um, it's a little bit more lush with the forest. And you've also got the coast here. And I honestly definitely missed living closer to the ocean when we were landlocked in Colorado. So I could see us maybe one day living back in Colorado, but I think Washington's home for now. Uh, really interesting that you mentioned going back to the the ocean there because my next question is uh, zooming out how does the hot welcoming weather of farm life in Melbourne compare with the new cozy climate of Seattle? Yeah I mean to be honest I've always felt like Seattle's climate and a lot of things about Seattle actually the culture the people um, it's very similar to Melbourne. So it's a, quite a progressive city. And in terms of the, the weather, 
Melbourne, we always joke, is like four seasons in one day. You know, it's not that <laughs> typical. <laughs> it's not that typical, uh, crazy hot year round. What people think Australia is, it gets cold in winter. It snows in the mountains in in Victoria in winter. So, um, I think uh, Seattle is very similar. It just gets colder here, and it doesn't get quite as hot. But honestly, it's like really not that different to living in Melbourne. <laughs> And I was wondering, how much did Mount Rainier have as an influence on moving to Washington as well? Yeah, I mean, it was one of many reasons, but definitely a consideration. And to know that there's three national parks pretty much within two hours-ish driving distance of our house, kind of in each each in a, a different direction. So that was a pull and the food and the culture and the people and just so many things. Seattle's a really cool place to live. Yeah, sounds it. <laughs> in the UK, I drive for two hours and I'll be in Birmingham or <laughs> just about in Brecon Beacons National Park. So it's not yeah. quite as good. <laughs> it, has its, it has its good sides too, though. Yeah, of course. Um, so the green card that you won uh, to, to get to America, which is just awesome. If you didn't get that on your second attempt, what do you think you'd be doing now? You know, I think I, it's hard to know, but I think we probably would have applied again. Um, I think we would have just kept applying year after year. And I'd like to think we would have eventually got it anyway, because, you know, this is just my opinion. But it's a, it's a lottery, but it is based on a lot of things. So to win this lottery, you have to have a degree and you have to have a degree or a certain amount of work experience. You have to have kind of ticked certain boxes. And um, there's a lot of people out there that say if you have a if you have a degree in a profession that the US needs, that you'll be put higher on the list. Mm. And the year that um, we won, obviously I had a degree in speech therapy and that was in the top 10 needed jobs in the US. So it's a lottery, but I think it's kind of rigged. So I think <laughs> I, I think we probably would have got it eventually anyway, honestly. But um, yeah, if that hadn't have happened, I think we'd be living in Melbourne. I'd be a speech therapist. Um, I'd like to think that uh, Matt would have still got into photography and, and maybe I would have eventually as well. But honestly, I think our lives would look completely different. So um, moving to the US really changed everything for us. Mm, perfect. So as I mentioned at the start, you're clearly a hard grafter and you don't shy away from advising people to follow suit and research through YouTube, Skillshare and even buying a course if you really want to know how something's done. Can you recall a specific work trip you did that was really hard work aside from roaming America? Oh, honestly, I feel like it's most work trips we go on. Um, <laughs> you really just don't Instagram you just don't see the hard work that goes on behind the scenes and I get frustrated by that but at the same time I also know that I don't show the behind the scenes so it's kind of my fault for not um, <laughs> letting people see that but um, I would say trips mostly trips that were destination based so maybe it was working for a tourism board or a hotel um, or something like that and we just had terrible conditions, you know, just like the weather was really bad or um, certain circumstances where we were finding it very challenging to shoot and get the content we needed and time was running out. That's happened to us lots of times. And I honestly find that they're always the most stressful trips because you don't want to let that client down. And, and this is obviously our job and we need to earn money and all those sorts of things so there's a lot of stress that comes with that but um you know that's not every single trip <laughs> yeah and that that's quite a lot of places and that's quite a lot of planning as well and and you said previously that one of your strengths one of at least <laughs> is organization so as someone with your own personal planner do you have any tips for us listening on how to plan a trip yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that I do is I use kind of a Google Sheet or an Excel sheet. Um, and this is actually what we did for the National Parks trip, roughly. And it's what we do for most trips is 
um, yeah, having an Excel sheet and actually just planning out, you know, where you'll begin at the start of the day and where you'll end. And it doesn't have to be exact because often our road trips and things, we leave a lot open for if the weather's good or if it's bad, we can move around. But if you just put something down and start planning for each of those spots, okay, these are the activities that we want to do. Um, this is a good spot for sunrise. This is a good spot for sunset. Um, and just having that in writing and then you can just, you know, jig it around as you go. But um, in other in other things that I do for planning, I would say looking a lot on Pinterest, blog posts, um, Instagram. You can find just so much information online. And I think a lot of people just don't put in the work to to do that research and then they take a trip and they're disappointed. So I think a lot of research often needs to go in beforehand if not only you want to have fun and see, you know, the things um, that you thought you were going to see, but also get great photographs if that's something that you're interested in. Mm. I've actually got a close friend, touching on that last bit, I've got a close friend who says that she does so much research because she would rather choose not to go somewhere and knew about it while she was in the country than get home and someone goes, oh, did you go to this place? And you just yeah. had no idea and it's, and it's right, it's like completely your thing <laughs> and you yeah. just had no idea. So, and that's definitely happened to me before, like mm, definitely happened to me before us, and I hate yeah. that feeling. So yeah, doing the research beforehand helps prevent that kind of thing and just helps, uh, you know, make you feel like you put the best effort in because it's it's expensive to travel. You know, you have to spend money to travel and, and you don't want to come home and think, wow, I spent all that money and I didn't put the effort and time in to make sure I did it well. So, yeah. Perfect. So traveling around all the U.S. national parks in the van would seem like a dream. And, and it's funny that this question comes up next when you're mentioning how, you know, you said don't compare behind the scenes of the highlight reel. And it's you said it's your folks. You don't put the behind the scenes on there. So if you give it two minutes of thought, it's actually really hard work and long days delivering for your clients. What did a typical day actually look like for you? So on the National Parks trip, I would say there was kind of two typical days. So one typical day was literally we just got up and we drove like eight, 10 hours. And then we arrived somewhere and we went to sleep. So that was one typical day because we we traversed uh, like 25,000 miles and um, we did a lot of flights and a lot of commuting. So yeah, that was a, one typical day. It was just driving all freaking day long. And then another typical day would be to get up um, before sunrise so that we could drive to whatever sunrise spot um, if we weren't camping there. And, for example, in places like Arcadia National Park in the middle of summer, that meant getting up at 3 a.m. because sunrise was at um, just after 4 at the peak of summer. So um, yeah, that, you know, getting up at that time and then spending at least a couple to a few hours kind of capturing photos in, in the morning light. And then I would say next, we'd probably go on a hike to, you know, cause part of the trip was we were trying to explore uh, the, the national park the best we could so that we could show that to people and show people the best hikes and, um, you know, uh, generate that information from a first-hand experience so we yeah we'd probably go for a hike and then we'd probably cook some lunch or find some lunch somewhere and then sometimes we'd have to then go on another hike because we you know needed to from a time perspective um, and sometimes we would uh, just like have a rest or um, whatever and then we'd have dinner uh, and then we'd shoot sunset and then we would usually spend a number of hours working at night um, and then go to bed and then do it all again the next day so um, I, I, that probably sounds amazing to most people and it was really amazing to us as well but it was also uh, very 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 tiring yeah <laughs> very tiring it, it is amazing but also at the same time try doing it every day for seven months Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So everything's good in, in small doses, right? Um, and after a few months of, of getting up um, before sunrise every day, you you do just want to have a day off. But <laughs> I don't want to sound ungrateful. It was honestly the best thing I've ever done. Um, it was just had its challenging moments as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So thinking about those long road trips, uh, the massive time between 
places, uh, your road trip songs, how much do they reflect when you were on the road trips with your parents that they'd save up for time and time again? Were any of the songs quite similar? Um, you know, I feel like when I was growing up on road trips, my mum, she's similar to me. She just loves, I, I'm definitely not a good singer, but I love just like singing in the car and singing in the shower and around the house or whatever. So I honestly, those trips growing up, I just remember listening to like Alanis Morissette and um, <laughs> you know, like the cause and, and bands like that and just singing at the top of our lungs in the car and my dad just being like, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> and like U2 and, and bands, like big U2 fans, my family. So like listening to music like that in the car. But honestly, I feel like I still enjoy doing that on road trips. But at the same time, I love more of that kind of folky, nostalgic um, feeling when I'm on the road, something a little bit more calm. <laughs> um, and I feel like my road trip playlist on Spotify definitely reflects more of that um, that modern side of things the way I, I like to enjoy trips now I think I've listened to about 80 percent of that playlist so I, I would agree <laughs> with you <laughs> yeah I just love the um, I love the overall vibe of just you can put one of those songs on and sit by the campfire or cruise down the road with the windows down and yeah all those artists are just so talented I love it yeah for sure so you've said how being outdoors previously is a is a therapy and I think for probably for nearly everyone listening that is the case <laughs> but for any of those who still need convincing what are your thoughts and on the importance of getting outdoors and moving? Yeah I mean it is definitely like therapy I think for a lot of people but one way I always think of it too is um, particularly now in you know, such modern times, we never have any quiet, like we never have any solitude because, and when I say solitude, I even am referring to people that live alone or um, spend a lot of time alone because we don't have solitude from things like our phones. We don't have solitude from email, from social media, from, you know, computers, from Netflix. We never just kind of sit there and be with ourselves and be with our thoughts and I, I think there's a real beauty about being outside and yeah you might be hiking or you might be with other people but when you get to that destination that viewpoint or wherever it is the, the ocean you do you just sit there and you take it in and I think that's a really beautiful thing that we often we just don't really do that in everyday life and I, I personally don't really do that in everyday life unless I'm outdoors so it's a really great opportunity to kind of get more in tune with yourself and and connect with something other than technology. <laughs> yeah it's about living in the moment I suppose. Yeah. What's that film um, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty is it with Ben Stiller? I love Stiller? that movie yeah. Yeah and then that that bit where he's trying to photograph the snow leopard and he find, it finally comes out and he just sits back he doesn't take the photo he just enjoys yeah. the moment. Yeah that yeah. that like a like a stamp is in my head <laughs> sure and it's honestly something that um as a photographer I really grapple with because my first instinct when I get to a viewpoint or a destination is to get out my camera and that's just an extension that's just another piece of technology that is taking me away from enjoying the moment so it's something that I I have to think about all the time when I'm outdoors to stop and to make sure I'm not letting my camera take away from that experience um, and to more use it to enhance the experience. But, you know, it's something that I'm working on. <laughs> uh, for sure. So as someone with a degree, an aforementioned degree in speech therapy, but now a career in photography and travel, you clearly know firsthand the importance of just jumping into something new and just doing it. So I'm wondering if you could jump into something new now, what would that be and why? Ooh. Um, first thing that comes to my mind, honestly, it's probably something very creative. Like I've been wanting, my husband and I both for a long time have been really wanting to get into oil painting, you know, like proper canvas on an easel, like painting, like a whole 
mountain scene or something like that. And growing up, um, I have talked about this before, but I honestly did not consider myself a creative person. I don't feel like I came from a creative family in that sense. My my dad is an entrepreneur and he's very business-minded and my mom's very practical. My sister, she's also in the healthcare industry and she's very practical. I think they're all creative, but they certainly don't think they are. And I certainly didn't think I was when I was younger. And it's only really been in more recent years that I've realized that I am more creative than I realized if I just put some work into it and let that come out. And painting is something I've been really wanting to to really explore. So I think if I had just endless time and resources and that sort of thing, yeah, I think I would jump like head first into learning how to paint and actually getting good at it so you just need to inject about five extra hours into your day (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly but we're still we still are going to try and do it um just maybe you know on weekends or um after hours because it is something we want to try well it starts somewhere doesn't it and I think exactly maybe, maybe if you start it it will find its way into your day rather than you having to force it in so yeah for sure so speech therapy is teaching people to speak and in a romantic way I was thinking sharing photography is teaching people to see so how was the transition moving from a speech therapist to a content creator and photographer well I guess I kind of just touched on a little bit of that in the sense Mm -hmm. of um I've always had a very scientific brain and I I still do to a very large degree I, I do look at things you know, if someone else is seeing maybe the um, romantic side of things, I'm always like, yeah, but the, the statistics and like the science of it, like I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> um, that kind of person. I'm very, I'm a realist. And anyway, so I definitely, and it's a process that I'm still going through. I do have to step away from that real um black and white dry thinking about things which obviously that kind of thinking is very important for our society but for my work I have to be a little bit more open-minded and creative and it was really hard for me to begin with and it is still something that I have to work on but um yeah they really couldn't be much different the two careers I I didn't just focus on helping people talking when I was a speech therapist a very large, if not um, three quarters part of my job was actually helping people with their eating and drinking. A lot of people don't know that about speech therapy, but um, we're experts of the head and neck. And I helped like stroke patients and people um, who had gone through traumatic head injuries um, learn to swallow again. So, and to be able to move from being tube fed to being able to eat and drink. So, that's like very scientific and then to move into a career that was very creative yeah it definitely had its challenges but it all just essentially came down to practice and just letting myself get lost in it and trying to um, think of things in a way that I hadn't previously thought of them which was hard (laughs) yeah for sure um yeah, that took me away. Uh, I've <laughs> I've lost train of thought because I'm just I'm just thinking me too. Like I, I, like as far as the scientific, not the hard work of speech therapy. I haven't I'm yet to do something as wholesome as that. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, that scientific, that dry mindset. I'm also trying to try and just tease a little bit with more romantic thinking. So yeah, I think they can coexist. It's just yeah. about training yourself. Actually, I remember one of my friends, Scott Kranz, um talking about this and he is a lawyer but he's a full-time photographer now and has been for many years Mm. and he I remember said a similar thing that every day he has to work on getting his mind out of that regimented thinking into something a little bit more open-minded and I I think they can coexist and I'm I'm happy to have that part of my brain I I don't want that to go away but Mm. um yeah working on it being maybe a more like 50 50 balance instead of a little bit more scientific well there's there's a good quote i heard which is um uh basically there's i can't remember i think it's qualia soup on youtube really old videos where he just breaks down critical thinking in really easy to understand videos uh and hit the quote i always remember is uh remember have an open mind but not so open your brain falls out (laughs) yeah yeah, that's a good one i quite like that so following (laughs) on from all of that 
do you approach photography differently when you're shooting for yourself compared to when you're shooting for a client? Oh, absolutely. hundred um, percent. Mm. I would say it nearly, it, yeah, changes so much of, of what myself and also my husband and I do while we're, while we're conducting one of those shoots. Like if I'm just shooting for myself and it's a, a pretty landscape or maybe wildlife or, I don't know, something like that. I'm definitely thinking about it in just a very personal way and what I think is pretty and what I want to capture and what I want people to feel when they see that image. But if I'm shooting for a client, I'm 100% just thinking about, um, I'm, I'm still considering those things, but you know, I'm being paid to shoot that. So I have to make sure I'm considering what the client needs and what um, what they want people to feel when they see the image, if you know what I mean? Just like yeah, if you're working yeah. for anyone. What's, what's the detail they're given? Yeah. yeah. And like that might be making sure there's a logo in the right place that looks candid, but, you know, actually we've made a pretty big effort to, to have it in a particular <laughs> spot or, um, you know, making sure just really little things. If it was a photo, say, that I was in and it was just for me personally, I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about things like, oh, my hair is in a certain way or whatever. I'd just be a little bit more carefree about it. But if it's for mm. a client, I have to really be thinking about everything looking a certain way so yeah I definitely approach it differently cool uh yeah so for any expert photographers who've listened to that and perhaps gone duh <laughs> I <laughs> I didn't I yeah it was it was interesting to know because I didn't know if it was a case where you just take this beautiful photography and the clients go we'll have that <laughs> um oh, which I guess sometimes, sometimes happens because you get licensed yeah. Yeah, yeah that does sometimes happen or a brand will just look at something and um, you know come across one of my photos and say oh wow we love the feeling of this and we'd love to use it for our campaign um, but you know honestly I would say that happens less less often than just getting hired for for a certain to produce a certain thing if that makes sense yeah for sure jumping away from photography completely just for a moment uh, thinking back to your first trip in South America you developed unfortunately some food insensitivities right yeah 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 uh, so taking two years to get rid of it i'm interested to know what your opinion now is on the necessity of food when experiencing culture how do you approach embedding yourself and trying new foods these days yeah honestly that whole experience of it was a lot longer than two years actually i i struggled with with gut issues after that south america trip for gosh it was probably five years oh wow um, yeah, it was a really long time. But anyway, I think during that time when I was traveling and I had to avoid certain foods and I had to um, change the way I ate compared to at home and I, you know, so that I didn't feel sick and I could still enjoy the trip. It was sad. I, I really, you know, I went to places like Italy and I had to like not eat the pizza, which is ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> um, and it made me really um, appreciate that side of travel and how how much getting to enjoy a culture changes your experience so honestly now that I don't have food problems <laughs> I try pretty much everything it's like I'm still um I'm pescatarian so I, I still don't try like a lot of the meat dishes obviously but um if it's within the realm of things that I eat I pretty much try everything because I now definitely definitely value that side just because you go somewhere to enjoy the mountains so that's not truly experiencing the culture unless you're going into the town meeting the people having conversations trying the food you know seeing how they live and yeah I definitely value that perfect so you have a book called roaming america uh which uh by this point people listening will most likely know about it. I would have mentioned it in an introduction by this point as well. But the Roaming <laughs> America book is nuts. Uh, you were mentioning about the hard work you put in it um, earlier on the in, in the podcast, and I don't think it goes unnoticed. Like, you know, it's the the book that came from that client job that was separate from the book. Uh, yeah, it really does show. It sat about half a meter behind me, or hey. um, funny <laughs> enough, on my coffee table um, as a coffee well table book. But yeah, it's really good. Um, so yeah, I love the book. Beautiful photos, uh, the anecdotes you put in there as well. And, and I like as well the mix up of anecdotes and quotes too. Um, thinking back to the grind though, 
<laughs> and putting in the amount of work to, to make the book and you know, you were going back and forth with the, with the design team. How thankful were you for forcing yourself to journal each day? Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> thankful. Um, when I was writing the book, I that again comes down to the fact that I didn't see myself as creative enough to even write that book. But I really had to just tell myself to just get over that and just just give it a try because, yeah, I was kind of telling myself that you're not a writer, no one's going to want to read what you write, um, which is ridiculous because everyone's a writer if they just put their mind to it. So I had to find, I had to really get in this space that, I because I can't just like put a pen to paper and just write things like that what you're referring to is the sections of the book where it was um I I wrote different sections about how we felt in the moment when we were seeing certain views and doing certain things and it would literally read like we open the door and they're like you know it's like in the moment that's how you read it and I had to really get into a state of mind to write those sorts of things. I can't just like wake wow. up in the morning and just, um, you know, write so easily. So that was definitely a process for me to kind of uh, learn how to channel that in a writer. But I was definitely thankful for the fact that I journaled on that trip because it helped me. I would kind of go to my journal, see how I felt that day see what we did and then I would turn that into something a little bit more eloquent and you know something that people would would want to read so it was a process but I'm I'm honestly proud that I was able to do that because it it is something that I didn't really think I'd be able to do so it's really interesting because I mentioned I, I usually ask a question uh, in a lot of the other interviews I've done uh, about other people placing limitations on you and how you go about just pushing out and cracking on. But it seems that you place your own limitations on you in some cases and, and yeah, you just power so. through it. I think when it comes to creativity, I often put these limitations on myself and really just like my whole career has been a process of teaching myself that I can break through those self-imposed limitations and yeah I just really have to one want to do it and two just keep at it until I prove it to myself that I can do it I don't think I mean I I know a lot of people who are similar actually who and I think it comes down to a lot of photographers and a lot of people in the industry are perfectionists and a lot of those um, tendencies are hard to crack through but yeah, you really just have to keep working at it and eventually you're like, all right, all right, I can do it. <laughs> well, it's it's weird that you say you're not creative. I'm, I'm relating a lot um, with the, with what you're saying because I, I thought, you know, I'm a musician. If you give me a drum kit or a bass guitar, I can be creative. But if you make me write some lyrics, I, I just, just, I just poop <laughs> on it. Like, it's not going to go well. <laughs> but, yeah, and yet, if you, you clearly are creative because your photography is incredible. And yet when you were a speech therapist, you probably had to be creative in the ways you went around getting people to learn how to eat again and then talk again. It's not, it's not, not every person applies to how the book tells you to do it. So you probably have to be creative then. So it's just, it's just words. Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah. I guess I did have to think out of the the box when I was a speech therapist too, but I, I do feel like it was always kind of coming back to, that textbook like evidence-based practice Mm. that we were always kind of coming back to that science and you always did things within that science box but um the world of photography and writing and and these things there is no box like you Mm. can and that that if you want to stand out and if you want to be successful you often have to be that person who's going outside of the box and maybe no one's even been there before or showing you the way in your particular niche so uh yeah it's just it's just different yeah it's not uh, I mean my brother my brother's doing at the time of writing a PhD in music and he's always said it's it's actually quite hard so like for him it's easier than others because he finds music quite naturally but if you were to take a maths paper two plus two is four that is the correct answer but if they say write a piece of music you could you could love it you know all your friends could go that's brilliant that's that's the best thing i've ever heard today and then you hand it in and you get a fail <laughs> so yeah, exactly. yeah so the same thing with, with photography i guess you could really like a piece um and then and it might just not be that perfectionist meet the mark i suppose but yeah yeah for sure 
So it's often said that distance makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, and a French philosopher um, just agrees to that as well. He spent his whole life traveling Switzerland, Germany and Italy. And he said that friendships are warmed by absence. So when visiting all 59 US national parks with your husband, how did you balance keeping a relationship flowing while spending every day together in a camper van for seven months? And seven yeah. weeks? <laughs> well, and also, um, I'll preface by saying it wasn't just every day, it was practically every second. Um, <laughs> because the only time we spent apart was really like going to the bathroom and having a shower. And even as anyone who's lived in a van or camped knows that sometimes you don't even get a lot of privacy doing that. So, uh, <laughs> so it really was, um, you know, we spent every second of every day together practically. And yeah, it definitely had its challenges. We, up until that point, had already been working together for um, coming on to a year. So we already knew, and we'd been traveling together for years as well. So we already knew what it was like to spend that much time together. But what we'd never done together before, we spend that much time together and be on a seventh month, a seven month project day in, day out, working for a client with that high level of deliverables and pressure. So I think what that created was just extra stress and stress, mm. you know, on a relationship is hard. So yeah, we definitely had to learn along the way, ways to give each other space, but be still around each other. So for us, that would be like, putting on some headphones and just, you know, doing your own thing, even mm. though we're working right next to each other, we could still have some space or often our van, you could either sit in the back or you could sit in the front while you were driving. So Matt prefers to drive and I would just often sit in the back. So we couldn't even really hang out that much because of just the way the van was while we were driving. And it would honestly feel like you had all this time to yourself. Um, on a 10 hour drive, just being in the back chilling. So we just found ways to um, keep up a really healthy and nice relationship while still giving each other like, okay, I love you, but I just need a little bit <laughs> of space from you right now. I just need to like be alone um, because we're both, <laughs> we're both introverts. So we, um, we don't like being around other people all the time. So yeah, it was mm. a process. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it's not all stress on the trip anyway. Uh, have you heard of, I'm sure you have, type one and type two fun? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, perfect. So for anyone listening who hasn't, basically type one fun is a moment you would directly laugh in and a type two fun is maybe a dodgy situation which you laugh about afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you think of any type one and type two fun moments on your US National Park trip? The very first type two one that comes to my mind is uh, when we we had two instances where um, mice decided they wanted to live in our van. Um, <laughs> and so what how that works is because people are probably like, what? That's so weird. They you can't really stop mice getting in your car when you're camping out in the woods. They just come up through. Um, I don't know the technical terms, but through the part where the accelerator and the brake is, they just come up mm. through there and, and they get in your car. And um, we, one particular moment, we woke up in the middle of the night to one crawling up our blanket, like coming up near our face and just for a cuddle. <laughs> and in that moment, I can tell you right now, there was zero fun, zero laughter. There was a lot, particularly on Matt's end, because he hates rodents um he was like super freaked out and just like this is disgusting and we had to like clean the van it was really bad but now we look back on that moment and it's hilarious we you know <laughs> it's really funny and we laugh about it but honestly there were so many moments like that on our national park strip pretty much every time we came across a bear or some sort of animal in the outdoors in that exact moment you're just like whoa we're gonna die but then afterwards, you realize you were totally fine and it was incredible and you should be really thankful for that moment. So, yeah. Oh, gosh. So many type two moments and so many just um, type one fun as well, where we would be standing at a summit or, 
you know, on, at a lookout or just waking up to the most incredible view you could ever imagine and thinking, wow, like we have to pinch ourselves that this mm. is our job and someone is giving us the opportunity to see so much of the country and to have these amazing experiences. So, yeah, lots of different types of fun on that trip. Perfect. So uh, on this podcast and keeping with the U.S. National Parks for a moment, we usually invite people on to chat about their adventures, travels. And I really liked the entry on the Lake Clark National Park because I just think it's it looked gorgeous and it's just not spoken about as much as I think it should be. So briefly tell us how that section of the trip was for you. Yeah, so I would say, um, and I think my husband agrees, that Lake Clark National Park was our favourite part of that National Park strip. And it wasn't necessarily because it was the absolute best park of the trip. It is up there. It made our top 10 when we like ranked all the parks. But the reason why it was just so amazing was we had I think a very um, authentic experience. We got to ex- we got to experience not only multiple sections of the park, but we had the opportunity to stay in a wilderness cabin that was on Upper Twin Lake, right in the middle of the national park, and have have an experience where we weren't dirtbag camping. So it wasn't exhausting. We still had a cabin to sleep in. So we got to, um, uh, what I'm trying to say is we got to have incredible moments, see incredible views, do incredible things, but in the comfort of this amazing wilderness cabin, which is such a unique experience to be able to do that. And we met some really amazing people on that trip. We got to see um, Dick Prenicky's cabin, which is a cabin uh, that a man, Richard Pranicki, built and he lived in the wilderness, I think, for about 30 years by himself. And he fought off bears and he lived off the land and like he built the cabin with his bare hands and getting to really uh, know about his story and about what his solitude meant to the area and how it helped the area maintain its national park status and and things like that. It was really special. And I'm so thankful for that experience we had in that national park. It was just out of this world, amazing. It sounds idyllic. Uh, And again, uh, this is not a sponsored podcast, but I just love the book so much. I really recommend Uh people do the book. I've actually recommended it to people I've interviewed after the recording. I've gone, by the way, you should check out this book. Uh, Uh, It's one of my favorite entries. Yeah, Uh there you are. Jumping to the opposite end now, how was your trip to Tahiti of all places? Oh, we love French Polynesia. It's just, we've only been there once. We have been to, um, was it four or five islands? Four or five, five, I can't remember. Okay, <laughs> you did your research. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we've been to five islands in French Polynesia, but we've only done one trip. And that trip was just, I loved it so much. I want to go back to the same islands and see more of them. And I also want to go and see more islands in French Polynesia. But I've never experienced water like that anywhere else Mm. in the world. But it's just, it's exactly how you see in the photos. Like blue aqua, uh, turquoise, every kind of blue you could imagine. It's see-through. There's so many sea animals, coral. And it's just, yeah, honestly, I could spend like half the year in French Polynesia <laughs> mountains for half the year French Polynesia for the other <laughs> I actually think you just built the perfect year <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> it, it is nuts whenever whenever people talk about the blue of the water and I have the same thing with northern lights I almost need people to validate yes they do look like that mm. uh, and, I, and I don't know if it comes down to when I was younger we uh, my mum said we're gonna go to Cyprus on holiday and I was like sweet let's do it um and I looked at the photos uh, of the hotel and I had this lovely aerial shot of the hotel and it was right on, um, not the beach line, but it was right on the coast. It was right on, like you could walk to, down to the rocks. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, that blue, that, that ocean looks so blue. And I looked closer and where the waves broke, but there was water going on the beach was just not blue at all. <laughs> and uh, was, yeah, and yeah. It, yeah, and we got there and it was gorgeous, but it wasn't what the photo was. And yeah, yeah so... I'm always interested to know when when there's like, the glacial waters in Canada and, and French Polynesia, I always think, like, is the water really that blue? And 
and yeah and I so. try and I try and say that if I'm sharing something online and it is a place like that where people are like yeah but is Moraine Lake really that blue I try and be like yes it is like it's not <laughs> like obviously this photo is photoshopped to a degree because mm. every photo I put on uh, online is edited just to add yeah contrast and when you shoot in raw you have to edit a photo so um yeah. but it's not photoshopped to the point where the the water doesn't look like that and definitely canada french polynesia places like that um yeah every photo pretty much does it justice because it's just so beautiful for sure so most people i would say start on social media quite innocently and usually from passion judging from your followers i'd say you inspire approximately just over 420,000 people so do you ever feel pressure to post or do you just take a step back and if you feel like putting a picture up you, you'll do it um a, a little bit of both so uh definitely definitely in the last 12 months I think Instagram the algorithm's been a little bit harder to manage in the sense of it used to be that you could just put out the things that you liked and when you wanted to do it and you would be able to reach your audience. But now I don't know what they're doing in Instagram, but it's definitely the case that unless you do certain things, you know, you might have 420,000 followers, but to actually get those 420,000 people to see what you're putting out there, you kind of have to do certain things on Instagram. And that is, you know, posting regularly and, um, you know, engaging with your audience, posting things that people want to see. Like I could go on about that. But um, so to answer your question, yeah, sometimes I don't feel like posting. Sometimes I just want to take like two weeks off social media and have a proper break from mm. work. Um, but honestly, if I did that, there would be ramifications for my business. So I just try and not let that get to me. And I just try and enjoy the positive sides of Instagram and you know when I post I get to engage with everyone and have that sense of community so I try and reframe it and think oh I don't have to post today I have the privilege to engage with these people mm. and to try and I inspire to people today. yeah I get to mm. post today so I do try and reframe it but yeah I'm not going to pretend that there aren't days that I'm just like no I don't want to post on Instagram I just want to like sit on the couch in my pajamas and binge watch TV <laughs> like uh, so yeah there, there's there's ups and downs so if you could go back in time past the backcountry camping blogs past u.s national parks past iceland italy new zealand and with all of that experience go back to yourself traveling for the first time in south america what is one piece of advice that you would give yourself yeah so i will clarify as well and say that that wasn't my first time traveling that oh, was my first time traveling like not with my parents um yeah. and being an official like over 18 year old <laughs> um yeah, but yeah what I was gonna I say that's back... not oh wow there's other places than Melbourne <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was I very privileged in that my my parents they definitely took us on road trips and when I graduated high school they took my sister and I on a um like a Southeast Asia trip where we went to Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and we weren't like backpacking, like, you know, 20 year olds, but we still were just staying in hostels and things like that with my parents. So I did get to experience uh, parts of the world with the comfort of having a parent there to take care of me. And I'm very thankful of that. But looking back to that, um, south america trip where it was like the first time that i didn't have my mom or dad there to be like mom help me <laughs> um i would say piece of advice honestly well one just don't pack so much because i <laughs> that's like more of a trivial one but i think <laughs> looking back to those adventures i always used to just pack so much like i used to pack probably three times the amount of things that I would pack now just because I thought I needed all this stuff to get through life and to be happy in reality you realize that you just don't need that much stuff so that's one thing but secondly I would say to just not be so um like scared or worried about things I guess just don't be so anxious about 
not knowing what will happen. Because I think I, I think back to those trips and I'd be constantly thinking about, oh, but we don't have a certain thing 100% worked out or we don't 100% know if that tour is going to happen or like we don't know where we're going to sleep that night and just being very anxious about that, which is normal. I think, you know, you should know where you're going to sleep and things like that. But I think now I definitely approach travel a little bit more relaxed and like it's okay to change your plans. It's okay to not have perfect plans. Um, it's okay if the trip ended up being a little bit different to what I thought it was going to be. Um, I would probably just go back and tell myself to just relax a little bit. Relax and pack less. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And then last one before some wrap-up questions then. In all of those moments from all of those countries and from packing too much, <laughs> um, <laughs> what is one moment that you would love to relive? Ooh. I would say, hmm, I would say a moment that I want to relive would be the very first time I saw the Northern Lights. And I, you touched on the Northern Lights before, and that's probably why I've just thought of it, honestly. But um, I, that's an experience that I think in the moment you're just so busy trying to take it all in and maybe like trying to work out if you can take photos of it and, um, just you kind of confused what you're even seeing the first time if if it's not very strong at least which mm. for me the first time seeing the northern lights in iceland they weren't that strong that very first time so i was kind of like is it a cloud is it the northern lights i'm not sure um and they ended up getting stronger and, and confirming it but i would say yeah going back to that moment and just reliving that feeling of seeing one of nature's craziest creations um for the first time because yeah once you see it once obviously it's still amazing and incredible every single time but you're never going to quite have that same feeling of like holy crap <laughs> like that's insane nuts yeah it, it's it's on my to-do list i went to iceland and um and it was cloudy the four days after oh, that and i was no. like damn <laughs> That happens to so many people though, unfortunately. It's like when when I went when we went to um, Denali, the mountain only came out for like five minutes and we were like, hello, we've been here for four <laughs> days. Like um, it's just, yeah, you definitely have those moments traveling that you go to a place to see a specific thing and it doesn't always work out that way. But I would say the the picture you did get of Denali was so good. That on, on <laughs> Thank your way you. out. Uh, the... I had to work very fast to get that. I was like, oh my gosh, you can see the top. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, so it's funny. I, I've got um, a podcast on climbing Denali. Um, and the uh, the guy talks through how you do it because he's done it twice, once in summer, once in winter, the nutcase. Uh... Um, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, he's talking about how big and prominent it is. And I was like, yeah, I've got to do it. So I did a story uh, of of the page and I pan across going, yeah, I'm going to climb this mountain one day. And it's just the foothills and I slowly zoomed out and then you just see it poking above the cloud above it. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Nuts. And when you're there in real life, it's crazy. Like for those days that we couldn't see the mountain, people, the rangers or whatever would say, oh yeah, it's, it's kind of about that high. And they point to the sky to where roughly you would see it if, it, if the clouds were parted. And you're like, all right, sure. And then that moment that you actually see it, you think, wow, like how is it? And the reason it looks so big is, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think, is it the tallest mountain from like the base to the top in the world? Yeah, the prominence. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if it's not the tallest in the world, it's one of the tallest in the world. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's either the tallest or close. And that's why it just seems so massive in real life because you're just seeing so much of the mountain. And yeah, yeah mind blowing. I, I, I'd love, love, love to go back and experience more of Denali. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll climb it one day. So yeah, I hope yeah. you do. Fingers crossed. So wrap-up questions then. You have previously said that Iceland, Canada, New Zealand and Italy are your favourite trips and your favourite countries. If you could have one place all to yourself, which one would you go to and why? Like an entire trip of just having one place to myself? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You could bring your uh, husband if you want. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> gosh. Uh, 
I'd probably say if for that question, I'd probably say the Canadian Rockies because just because it is so busy there. And I think you can, when it comes to New Zealand and Italy, Iceland, places like that, you can really get away from the crowds and um, see incredible places with more solitude. But it's just a little bit harder in the Canadian Rockies. You can definitely get away from the crowds, but you kind of have to go on some pretty intense hikes and things to do that. If I could have places like Moraine Lake and... um, Peter Lake and Lake Louise and, and those really popular spots just completely to myself. That would be, yeah, wow, that would be amazing. Perfect. And this episode is going out on the 4th of July. So two little US National Park questions for you. As nice. someone from Melbourne, which National Park did you feel most at home? Ooh. Um, gosh. Maybe, oh, I know, Um, it was Channel Islands in California. And the reason being is there's eucalyptus trees everywhere. Um, And it's on the coast and there's water. There's lots of kind of dry shrubs and grass, which is very similar to like Australian summer. Mm. Um, In Victoria, that's definitely how, like with the eucalyptus trees and the dry grass, that's how it is in summer. Um, and just the smells of being by the ocean and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I would say the Channel Islands, even though it's like obviously very different still, but there were some... Of course. Yeah. Perfect. And narrowing it down, if you've got all of the national parks to yourself this time, and you said the Channel Islands are, are where you felt most at home, so it might be the same answer, but which one would you go to and why? If I could have it all to myself. Yeah. I would say, I would probably say Yosemite because similar to my Rocky Mountains answer, it's just really busy. (laughs) And to have the, particularly the Yosemite Valley, because you can go up in the the upper parts of the park and be completely alone, but to have the Yosemite Valley and to maybe ride a bike through it or just on foot or drive, whatever, completely by yourself oh I don't think that ever happens like maybe some rangers get to do that sometimes but um, like during the pandemic but honestly (laughs) I I don't think otherwise that's happened since um you know like the native people lived there and had it before the Europeans came and took it so um yeah I'd probably say Yosemite I love the angle you've taken on those questions, by the way. It's uh, it's the most efficient. <laughs> See, that's very practical I like it. thinking. Like that's where it comes <laughs> in. I'm, I'm very practical. But it's good. So, last question then. On your road trip vibes playlist, you have nearly 24 hours of songs. But if you could pick three non-negotiable road trip tracks, which ones would you choose? Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> Well, I would firstly, I would pick the song Ruby by Ira Wolf because that song is written about our van Ruby that we did our national parks trip in. Um, it's written about Ira's experience living in Ruby while she was traversing the country for um, some gigs that she was playing. And honestly, in that song, all the things she's talking about is exactly all the things I was feeling while living in Ruby for so long. So, that one is like very nostalgic to me and special. And then, gosh, um, I'm not sure if I could pick one song from him, but I would probably say uh, Iron and Wine. Just like anything by Iron and Wine is just, oh, it's just road trip 101, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I just love all his music. Well, I know technically I think it's a few people, not just him, but. Anyway, the Iron and Wine is like a band, I guess you could say. Um, and then I would say like she's not on the playlist that much, but I'd probably say Taylor Swift because sometimes <laughs> I just freaking love singing at the top of my lungs, you know. Shake just, it off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes you to get through a 10-hour day in the car, it, and, you know, I'll probably embarrass him a bit here, but even that, you just need to sing <laughs> silly songs at the top of your lungs and be like a total goofball um or you'll just go kind of crazy because those days are really long so 
that's my answer. Cool. <laughs> Perfect. Well, listen, Renee, it's been a an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, well, I hope we see you in another one soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was really awesome. My favorite interview on a podcast that I've done yet. That was so much fun having Renee on for the podcast and just chatting all things travel and background with her. I'm really glad that she enjoyed it too. And if you did as well, then please consider subscribing and following and share it with a friend as well. If you have someone in mind that you'd like to see interviewed, then I love doing these. So pitch me an idea, btmtravelpod at gmail.com and we'll see if we can make it happen. If you want to join in with the community, then we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at btmtravelpod. But otherwise, I hope you have a brilliant day. Check out the new website and I will see you in the next one.